Welcome to Defense Unicorns, a podcast for mission-focused innovators. We educate, inform, and provide mission heroes with DevSecOps, cybersecurity, and organizational transformation stories from the world's leading problem solvers. I'm your host, Rob Slaughter, and we're excited for you to join us on this journey. Welcome to our first podcast. Our guest today is Major Jason Lowry of the U.S. Space Force and current master's student at MIT. He's on our show to talk about Bitcoin and its strategic importance for national defense. Jason, welcome. Hey, Rob. Thanks for having me as your honorary first guest. I'm wearing a hoodie. I haven't shaved and my hair is out of regulations. So I'm in, I'm honoring the first time I actually ever met you, <laughs> which was in Catalyst Campus for an official of, you were a military officer at the time. You did not show up in uniform. You did not even show up in a suit. You were not shaved. Your hair was out of rags. I'll never forget meeting you that way and being impressed. And I liked you instantly from so that moment. What what impresses you is what does the opposite for other people. Thanks for thanks for sharing. <laughs> yeah. So uh, yes or no question for you. Do you believe your work, you know, while in the Space Force and while at MIT? has influenced at least the beginning groundwork of U.S. policy? Oh, I know there are people in powerful places that are listening. So I think a lot of that gets back to why I very much wanted you on this show. You know, this is a show about innovators, and, and I find it very impressive that an active duty major has found a niche that you are passionate about, has found a way to, within the system, to be allowed to innovate. Talk to me about the steps it takes for somebody like you to be put into this position to influence things on a national or, in this case, international scale. Well, I can tell you how it started. It started with me defending that ridiculous kid who showed up to work in a hoodie and unshaved because <laughs> you, you first have to recognize the people with good ideas. You have to have the courage to support them, uh, especially if they're iconoclastic because the, the good ideas are going to be iconoclastic. This gets back to strategy for, versus operational effectiveness. A good, innovative, strategic idea is gonna is not one that looks more efficient. It's one that takes a totally different approach that makes completely different trade-offs that at the surface level will appear to be ridiculous. And then it is the courage to actually do that, which means which means professional and career risk. So like I took some pretty significant risks as the, you know, the captain on staff trying to make sure that we take AFRL seriously, that we take space camp seriously, that we take platform one seriously and all the, all the teams and stuff that people like you had formulated these other innovators, like to support and defend them and actually like engage, but at the opportunity cost of supporting the actual programs. Like I got yelled at, like I, like I had a verbal counseling, me and our other friend that, you know, we were called in by my supervisor and she yelled at us and she was so angry. Like she had tears in her eyes, how furious 
she was that we had been spending so much time supporting you over the multi-billion dollar program of record. And so you have to take those hits to defend those people. And then eventually you have to be that person. And so I transitioned from being the person to defending the innovators to being the innovator. And that's hard because you have to make those trade-offs and it's, and the dilemma is that like the best stuff is going to be the iconic stuff or iconic classic stuff. It's going to be the controversial stuff. You have to stand up and you have to defend that position and like, and, and it's so easy to look back retrospectively and be like, yeah, obviously these programs were going to work. But at the time you have no idea. You have no way of knowing if, if this is going to be successful or if it's not. So you have to be willing and comfortable to take those risks and then to go for it. And so that worked out and it was mostly just, I think it was, I mean, yeah, I took the courage and like, you know, work ethic, but it was also just good timing. Like I just got lucky. But then after having been lucky and then placed in this amazing opportunity, like consider the professional and rear career risk I take. I'm, I'm the first and only Space Force officer as a U.S. National Defense Fellow at MIT. I'm charged with understanding the emerging strategic implications of technology. What everyone expects of me is to study space. I'm an astronautical engineer. Like that's what is, is expected of me. What isn't expected is for me to put on a uniform and go on the best business podcast and talk about the strategic implications of Bitcoin. I get a bunch of flack for that. I take enormous professional and career risk for doing that. And, and I take a lot of spears. And it's only until 10 years from now where we look back and we see if that was a good decision. And at that point, it won't even appear radical. It will have, like, if I'm right, it will just appear self-evident as it always does. Like, obviously it's self-evident that we should, you know, do CICD and, and do a better way of developing software but it wasn't self-evident at the time. And so you have to take risks. You have to be willing to put yourself out there in the face of enormous uncertainty. And, and then another, this is another thing that I just recently discovered is you have to figure out how to forgive all the people who were against you the entire time. Like you have to be, you have to take like a higher path because they're going to turn and then they're going to act like my supervisor who yelled at me turned, flipped 180 and was like, and pretended like she supported you the entire time. Like it was her idea. And you just have to accept that and say yes. And then shake your hand. And then, and that, that hurts because you go through, you know, you go through some emotional trauma. If it's a really good idea, like if it's really, like if it's really disruptive, you're going to take some emotional trauma and fear and then just to, like you've demonstrated this well to just graciously give the credit to other people, knowing that the greater good is progress of, as the organization as a as a whole, rather than scorch earth, get your vengeance on the people who tried to stop you. It it takes that too. So I will I'm taking a risk. I'm getting a lot of flack. If I'm wrong, no big deal. It's like whatever. I mean. Like my peer, no one even knows who my peers are or what they're writing about. Like, so who cares? I look stupid, whatever. What are you going to do? Like, I'm a, like, I got options, right? Like you're going to, so, so the, it's just kind of, you know, you just have to let your, you have to allow your feelings to be hurt when 
people post mean things on Twitter. <laughs> but that's that's undo. I, I can handle that. But but if I'm if I'm that's if I'm wrong. If I'm right, then and people realize it, then you have to have the grace and humility and foresight to not be disdainful, but to just continue moving the ball. And so for any innovators out there who are struggling, who feel like they have a really good idea, especially if they're in the government, it's easier for people outside of the government, but especially for people in the government, the good ideas are going to be iconoclastic. The good ideas are going to be at an opportunity cost of supporting the thing that you should be doing, the thing that would give you the higher, better performance record. And then you're going to have to take a risk. But if you, but it, you just have to be able to suck it up and and do it and and just understand from the very beginning like every in every example that i ever succeeded at the beginning i was criticized at the beginning i was unsupported at the beginning i was told by my peers and bosses to stop and to not do the thing and that's just a precondition to innovation and you just have to like if you go down this path know that it's a it can become a lonely path and have the courage to 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 deal with it when when people hit that low point, because I'm sure you and I have both been there, what advice would you give them or or possibly even wish you could give yourself over the last couple of years? Yeah, when you hit that low point, I don't want to say like don't take it to heart because for me, the you know, the criticisms and stuff where it's empowering, it, it emboldened me and made me want to try that much harder. So like anytime people tell me and stupid for saying Bitcoin is a national strategic imperative. That just makes me double down. Like, I just want to, like, I'm just going to make my thesis that much better because you told me that. So not necessarily that when you're at those low points, I guess I would just say that think about the bigger picture. Is this, if this is something that is important for reasons that are way bigger than yourself, then just focus on that, like take the spears, take the punches and, and like that, that's where you'll be tested if you're doing it for the right reasons. And just remember that, like, you don't, it's not as serious. You probably are like over-exaggerating how much risk you're taking, at least for the people that are like my level and below. Cause like if space camp had failed or if anything that you had done and failed, it, it wouldn't have been the end of the world. Like you got to recognize the asymmetric opportunity. If I'm wrong about Bitcoin, who cares if I'm right about it, then this is the most important thing. So yeah, I guess the, that I would, that's what I would say is just focus on the bigger picture. What you're doing is bigger than yourself and focus on the asymmetric benefits of if you succeed. So I was trying to figure this out. You're, you're active duty and you're currently working full-time at MIT. Can you explain that for me? Yeah, I have the best job in the entire DoD. Like it's the coolest job. I get paid full salary to go to MIT to study the strategic implications of emerging technology on defense. In this case, specifically to study Bitcoin full-time, to write a master's thesis and I'm extremely thankful for this opportunity. The, the reason I got it is because every year, multiple military branches actually send engineers to 
MIT in what's uh, called a National Security Fellowship. So I got nominated to be a fellow. Once you become a fellow, you get sent to this these different schools. As an engineer, I went to the engineer school, but policymakers go to policymaking schools or et cetera. So th that's why I'm in the position I'm in. It actually serves as my intermediate developmental education. So it doubles as my, what is effectively Air Command Staff College Tour. It's a little bit longer just because the program's a little bit longer. And I'm here to study uh, my main course of, my main courses are surrounding engineering and management, specifically systems engineering. And so hopefully I can take this knowledge back to the military, not only for technologies like Bitcoin, but also just systems engineering and the practice of systems engineering in general, which is applicable to my career field as a systems engineer in, in the Space Force. Yep. So uh, I remember when you told me that you were going to study a national defense topic and the topic was going to be Bitcoin. I, I, I thought at the time that you had just didn't know what Bitcoin was and you were actually going to study blockchain, but in fact, it was Bitcoin. And, you know, do you, do you mind for maybe a second in your own words for maybe the folks who are listening, who may not be as familiar with Bitcoin, can you, can you describe what Bitcoin is? I can, it's going to sound crazy. <laughs> Yeah. So, so I, I think the easier way to describe it is describe the consensus protocol behind Bitcoin, which is called proof of work. So proof of work is effectively a protocol where people defend their access to their private property using power. And, and so what, what Bitcoin effectively is, is a new way for people to have and defend their access to private property using power projection to achieve zero trust and egalitarian control over their private property. But what makes Bitcoin so special is this proof of work power projection is purely electrical. So we have a, so, and my, my thesis will get into this, and this is where the part where it sounds crazy is in my opinion, what Bitcoin effectively represents is the emergence of a new private property control structure that supplements war, that supplements the traditional way that humans achieve zero trust and egalitarian control over their private property using power, which is what our career was and still is, which is through, through kinetic power. And so th that has always been the way that I viewed Bitcoin from when I first read the white paper. I read this guy who said the word attack 25 times in eight pages. That's the, the white paper says the word attack or attacker 25 times in, in across eight pages. He describes how honest people can use their computational firepower to defend their access to property. And, and, and that's what clicked for me. And I, I just thought it was a beautiful, beautiful description and maybe a, a way that, that not just people, but also organizations and nations in the future can, can achieve zero trust, egalitarian, secure access to private property in the future that could supplement the legacy system. And, 
And, and so that was years ago. And I just kept on like studying, studying, studying. And, and I got to the point where I could articulate, articulate it decently well, but not in a way that really resonated with other people. And so my goal here at MIT and as a U.S. National Defense Fellow is to help people understand a new framework for visual for understanding Bitcoin that could affect policy. Because what we see now, especially, is uh, a bunch of we have a presidential executive order. We have multiple different government agencies that are now being told to develop a policy framework or new policy for cryptocurrencies in general, but also to include Bitcoin. And that's going to be very challenging for them. And so hopefully I can be useful as the U.S. National Defense Fellow to explain the facts, to explain a new definition, some new causes and new value associated with this technology that could inform effective policy. Okay. A lot of people actually bash proof of work due to the energy cost associated uh, with proof of work. Can you, you know, first explain what proof of work is and then talk about, in your opinion, is, is proof of work wasteful? Yeah. Okay. So the first question, what proof of work is? When you look at any type of blockchain, most types, you run into a problem, which is, especially in a decentralized system, all these different nodes have to figure out which blockchain, which, which, so first of all, what's a blockchain? A blockchain is simply a distributed ledger. It's nothing fancy. If you have a decentralized ledger, you run into a problem, well, which ledger is the quote valid ledger? And so the way most blockchains work is the valid ledger or the valid blockchain is the, is the longest ledger or the longest blockchain, the one with the most record. Okay, so that, that creates a, an, a systemic security vulnerability. If you, if you have a consensus protocol where all the nodes simply agree that the longest chain is the valid chain, then you you create a systemic vulnerability where if you if a person or a bad person develops some scheme where they could routinely have the longest ledger then they can actually cause havoc they could they can effectively gain control of the ability to write the ledger to always have control of the valid ledger and then they could misabuse they could abuse that control they could deliberately withhold transactions from the ledger, otherwise valid transactions from the ledger and effectively denial of service attack, honest, valid transactions. And so there's a trade-off there. You have to, you have to achieve consensus somehow. Everyone has to agree on what the valid chain is. If you use longest chain is valid chain consensus protocol, you have to understand there is a systemic security vulnerability associated with that consensus protocol. And then you have to find a way to remedy that systemic vulnerability. And the, and the two, the two most popular are proof of work, which is what's used in Bitcoin or the other, the other one that's super popular is proof of stake. So in proof of work, the longest chain is associated with the most power. Basically the power projectors have the right to write the ledger and in proof of stake the people with the fattest stack of Ethereum, let's, let's just call it, 
because that's the largest proof of stake. The people with the fattest stack of Ethereum get to write the ledger. And, and those are two differences. So that's point number one is you have to find a way to solve the systemic security vulnerability. Then the question becomes, well, what's the best way to do it? And the proof of work, like bashing the people that it, that bash proof of work for being energy intensive, I think do that because they fundamentally don't understand how property defense works from a first principles, like physics viewpoint. They actually legitimately believe that proof of stake is a viable substitute for proof of work. And, and then they, they actually believe that the point of proof of work is not to secure the network against the systemic vulnerability, but to quote, mint more Bitcoin, which is not true. And so, so that's the, that's the problem. Now to solve that, you have to explain in a way that people understand intrinsically how proof of work works and, and the value of it. And I can tell you what doesn't work effectively. What doesn't work effectively is what I just did to actually address, okay, what's a blockchain? What's a ledger? How do you know, how does longest chain equals valid chain consensus protocol work? What's the best way to secure it? That's what most people do. They'll, they'll describe it in, in blockchain speak in crypto speak, and then they'll be surprised that like the person they're talking to doesn't understand WTF that guy just said, right? Which I, which your audience probably is thinking right now. And so, so the key, I think my key observation that I'm trying to leverage in my thesis is to find a different way to explain this thing that people can understand without any fundamental, you know, without having to do two years of research in how blockchain technology works, that it's still factually accurate. That's in, that is an empirically valid definition that can speak towards the main causes that can speak towards the value. And then if you can do that shape policy effectively. And, and so that's kind of what I'm experimenting with. And so, and so I think the way to do it, my theory, by the way, what's theory theory means it's from Greek. It's just, and basically means finding a way to view something, to look at something in a different way. So by, by hoping to, to present a grounded theory, what I'm hoping to do is present a different way of looking at this problem set that's useful to policymakers. And my theory is that Bitcoin is the feature of warfare. And so if you understand what is warfare, how did warfare emerge? What are the facts and definitions and causes and value, which is a hard thing to argue, by the way, I had to argue the value of warfare itself, which is it puts you in an uncomfortable position, especially on Twitter. Well, actually, give us that argument. What what is the value of warfare? Okay, so so the the way I think I need to approach it, first of all, I'm still figuring this out. Like I have to figure out what is the most effective way to present this theory. And interviews like this give me an opportunity to practice that, which is part of the quote grounded theory methodology of theory development. So it's kind of confusing. Theory itself is a way of looking at something, but the term grounded theory is actual, a formal graduate research methodology. So, so I have to practice very, very MIT of you. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Thank you. 
It's, it's actually interesting. Grounded theory is actually a really common methodology used in social sciences and anthropology. It's not frequently used in MIT or engineering. Engineering theory theses are often highly quantitative. So here are some numbers to throw at you. A grounded theory is qualitative. There are no numbers. But to fully understand strategy itself, which is a non-quantitative non phenomenon, there are no numbers behind good slash bad strategy, but also security itself is filled with frustratingly non-qualitative phenomenon like design, design flaws, or ethical considerations. So it's actually kind of interesting. I'm, I'm presenting an engineering thesis that doesn't use a quantitative methodology. It uses a purely qualitative methodology that's frequently found in, in sociology and anthropology, but it's the only effective methodology I think I can use to explain the socio-technical value of Bitcoin, which can then be used to shape strategic policy. But so that was a totally nerdy side note. So. How do you explain the value of war? <laughs> That's hard. I think the way to do it is to focus purely on the physics, to go back to first principles and try to understand how war emerged, what it's used for, and what are the shelling points in, in war. And so you're the, so I'm going to turn this back on you because you're the guy, you're the doctor in physics. You tell me what is war from a first principles physics standpoint? You know, a lot of my opinions are actually formed off of listening to you speak and, and, and marrying that to my own background. And I would say that at its very basic form, it is defense of either property or perceived ownership, traditionally using a kinetic effect. Right. Yeah. That's, I can tell you've been listening, <laughs> but, but that, but I, I can't think of any other simpler way of putting it is people perceive to own something, whether it be land or money or a right to something, they, there is a perceived ownership of a resource or a property to include your life, to include your values. And you uh, defend your access to that thing or you define your ownership of that thing through the projection of power in watts, in joules per second. What's interesting about this is you can, you can tie this back not to 6,000 years of agrarian society or 200,000 years of homo sapiens you can tie this back to 4 billion years ago. The, the birth of life itself is effectively a story of protein structures learning how to fight nature to project power to defend their life, whatever you want to define that as, to, to defend their property, to defend their access to resources. If you take a spoonful of water and look at it under a microscope, you will see 
single-celled organisms that had existed for billions of years in a giant unicellular bloodbath. They're, they just are just murdering each other nonstop. And we look at it like, oh, interesting, but it, it, we don't feel bad about it because why would you feel bad? They don't perceive pain. They, like to have a pain neuron, like you have to have multiple cells, right? These are single cells. They don't, they don't, they don't have eyeballs. They don't have brains. They don't see or know what they're doing. They, they can't feel pain. This is just, this just is, you have to take a very stoic, non-emotional scientific approach to understanding how life itself organizes to defend its resources, to defend its access to resources and how it scales that game. And so what's cool about Bitcoin is we've effectively created a new resource or a new form of property. And this isn't just true for Bitcoin. This is true for all cryptocurrencies. We're forming a new digital property, a new digital resource. And it's forcing humans to reevaluate what does property even mean? What does ownership even mean? And, and that gets real confusing real fast. And so you have to dial it back. Well, how did property emerge? How did life organize itself to defend property or to gain access to property? How do you know if something is owned or if something isn't? The concept of ownership, the perception of ownership existed before humans did. So you don't need laws. You don't need spoken word or written word to define what ownership is. It's something that transcends that because animals fight over property all the time, fight over resources. And so my observation is, well, well, let me ask you. There's a dog. You're in a house. You're in someone's house. And there's, there's a dog. And there's two things on the ground. And you pick one up. And the dog doesn't care. It's just sitting on the couch doing whatever you want. And then you pick up this other thing off the ground and the dog looks at you and snarls. Okay. Which of those things belongs to the dog? <laughs> Probably the, the thing that got its attention. Yeah. The thing it started snarling at you about. So the way you perceive what the dog owns is the power it projects to defend its access to that thing. When you pick up a dog toy in front of the dog and he believes that's his dog toy, he'll snarl at you. He's reminding you that is mine. Do not take that from me. Okay. So does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. So like, so no, own ownership itself is an abstraction. It's a, it's an idea that resides in the brains of whatever animal is claiming to own something. And the only real world physical manifestation of this concept of ownership is the power that the thing will project to defend its access to that thing that's supposedly owned. Okay. Th th this is how nature works. You, you take a dog into, to a, you know, the Siberian wilderness and it smells a tree and it smells the urine of a wolf. That dog will be scared. Why is that dog scared? Like that dog knows he's not in friendly territory. That dog knows that some other creature has claim, has ownership claim over this territory or life is organized around this property. 
that you can't own. Well, let me ask you this. So is it true that you actually own something if you can't access it? I would say perceived ownership can still exist and, and possibly multiple people, countries even may have perceived ownership over the same thing. Isn't that interesting? So if you have a perceived ownership of something and you cannot access it, but someone else can, and let's say you both have perceived access or perceived ownership of it. One has access, one doesn't can't defend access one can who owns the thing how do we achieve cons how do we achieve consensus on who owns the thing so so that is that brings me to another question then just to to hammer that point what is the military equivalent to proof of work so what th these questions that we're asking these rhetorical questions we're framing, we're reached, we're trying to get down to the root of what does ownership mean? What does property even mean? How do you decide what is the legitimate claim to the state and chain of custody of any underlying resource or property? Then we've established that humans, for whatever reason, tend to just take, just achieve consensus. Those who project the most power to defend their access to property are the, you know, they earn the right to claim legitimate state chain of custody of that underlying property. Okay. So then what is military then simply that power projection apparatus to achieve consensus on the legitimate state and chain of custody of some underlying property said differently. What is the military than just a bunch of people trying to agree on the legitimate state of state of custody of property in a in a in a zero trust and egalitarian nature. So what what does that mean? If 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 let's say me and you have perceived ownership of a of a thing. It's valuable. Some other people are going to want to have ownership of it too. So they're going to make competing claims to ownership. You've got three ways to defend your access to whatever you want to claim to own, at least insofar as I can tell. The first way is to trust your neighbor. So we just make an agreement. Okay, this is Rob's painting of an astronaut floating in the ocean. Okay, so that's what you have on your back of your podcast here. So, okay, who owns that thing? Well, Let's just agree. Well, handshake, that's your thing. So you've defended your access to that property. The problem is you're trusting me not to break this agreement. Because you could leave and I could go into your house and I could take the thing. Physically just take it from you. Now I can defend my physical access to this thing, but you can't because it's mine. And if you come at me, I'll punch you in the face or something. So trust is has a security vulnerability. People can abuse that trust. So there's another way that you can defend your access to your property. You can project power. You can defend it yourself by physically preventing me from taking it from you. You can lock the doors to your house. You can shoot people if they try to come in and take your thing. All right, you can do that yourself. That's option number two, to defend your claim to ownership of that thing. 
or at least to defend your access to that thing. The third one is you can trust someone else to project power to physically stop an attacker. So maybe you don't want to be the one to pull the trigger, but you'll call the police if someone's coming in to physically stop the, the person who's trying to take your stuff to deny you access to your property. So there's three options. You can trust your neighbor. You can project power yourself. You can hire someone else to project power for you. Option number one requires trust. Option number three requires trust too. You have to trust your cop not to turn on you. You have to trust your defender not to turn on you. So the of those three options, the only true zero trust option, the only way you can defend your access, your claim to ownership of that thing without having to trust any other intermediary is to project power on your own, to do it yourself. So... The good news about this power projection game is that it requires no trust. If you have to trust someone, you introduce a security vulnerability, a systemic security vulnerability. They could misabuse that trust. They could, they could oppress you. So, so power projection, the ability to engage in this competition from which no one can unsubscribe. No one can unsubscribe to getting punched in the face or like falling over if you get punched in the face, right? No one can unsubscribe from being physically stopped. If you use power projection, then you have that's the only way you can achieve zero trust and egalitarian control over a property. And so we intrinsically recognize this as the quote fair and egalitarian way of, of settling property disputes. So so it's it's North America belongs to the United States. Because we engage in a zero trust power projection competition with its other claimed owner, and we won that competition. And as a result of winning that zero trust and egalitarian power projection competition, does everyone else in the world recognize the United States as the legitimate owner of the North American territory? Does that make sense? Uh, yeah. So militaries are just an apparatus to play that game and and they emerged in i mean i guess the term what we now know as militaries this like organizational structure of soldiers emerged 5500 years ago to protect effectively farmland but this this game of engaging in power projection competitions to establish zero trust and egalitarian control over resources is four billion years old that's how all life emerged. Life is nothing but a giant fight. And the winner of that fight gets the property. There's a reason why you see mostly just Homo sapiens claiming territory now rather than all the other humanoid species that existed at the same time Homo sapiens did. And it ain't a pretty reason. Like the, it ain't a friendly story. It's not a happy tale. And, and we're so, we're such peak predators. We're so good at this power projection competition that we actually forget that it happens. Like we take it for granted. I, I guess I'm predisposed not to do this because I am the heir to a uh, beef cattle farm. So when's the last time you thought about where your steak come from? Only on a high level based upon how delicious I thought it was going to be. Yeah. So where does your steak come from, Rob? A cow. Okay. How, 
So give me a little bit more of those details. <laughs> well, how do you go from cow to delicious steak in your, in your... <laughs> well, my last name's slaughter. So <laughs> I, uh, probably describe it in, in, in maybe some detail, but yeah. And let me ask you another question. What is a cow? I, an animal. Is it a naturally occurring animal? Did they have cows 50,000 years ago? I have no idea. <laughs> They didn't. <laughs> Cows aren't even a naturally occurring animal. They're a genetically enslaved animal. Humans genetically enslaved oryx. They they, so they, they basically, sapiens ran out of stuff to murder <laughs> and, for food and realized, okay, we need to capture some of these things and just like let them breed and then just kill their babies and just eat their babies. <laughs> I mean, this sounds like, yeah, I know. So this is hard. This is not a topic that makes you popular at a party, but it's a topic that, that you must understand to appreciate proof of work, how property rights emerge, how this entire system operates. So humans figured out how to genetically enslave Oryx into cows. They killed, they, they ate the, the misbehaving Oryx, the ones that put up a fight. They kept the friendly oryx, the ones that are passive. They kept on breeding the passive ones until what you get today is a big fat meat bag that doesn't put up a fight. That's, that's, I, I'm from a family of beef cattle ranchers. So that's what a cow is. It, it is a genetically modified oryx that humans created. That's what, by the way, all, you know, we have a friendly name of, for it. What's the friendly name? Domesticate. That's a friendly way of saying it. We domesticate animals. We domesticate pigs and sheep and cows. We domesticate wolves into these adorable little dogs that we can cuddle with. And we totally forget and take for granted how we even got here, how you even got that steak. You got that steak because Homo sapiens mastered the power projection game. And now that steak is our steak. That cow is our cow. We have shaped the world off of this brutal but egalitarian control structure over any form of resource, whether it be food, whether it be water, whether it be land to grow. So, so, so talk that's to me a, a little bit about, you know, your theory on Bitcoin and its direct relationship to national defense. Okay. It's a, I guess you'll, it's a couple stages. First, we've established that power projection is kind of a big deal. We are the peak predators. That's how we, that's why we can claim to own land in the first place. That's why it belongs to a homo sapien and not a duck. Agrarian society started formulate, forming itself in and specializing in this thing called warfare. We started having specialized jobs like soldiers and, but the whole role was super simple. You just project power to defend your ownership over property. That's what, that's what wars are fought over is effectively uh, defense or uh, disputed ownership of resources or property. Okay. Now we've, and, and that's been a pretty effective consensus protocol. Like if you read history, history 
what is history? History is a ledger of all the power projection competitions that took place in a sequential order, i.e. it's a ledger of property ownership. This belonged to the Native Americans, then it belonged to European colonialists, then it belonged to the United Kingdom, then it belonged to America. Now we, we fast forward that game all the way up to the invention of electricity, of software, and now the, the invention of digital property. So humans have created digital property. Now the question is, how do you achieve zero trust and egalitarian control over digital property? And this is where it gets super, super interesting because you have to ask yourself the question and you have to really think deep about this. Is there such a thing as true ownership? Can you truly own or defend your access to digital property without the mechanism to project power, to defend your access to it, to physically prevent attackers from denying you access to your digital property? Is that even a thing? And if the answer is no, there is no such thing as zero trust and egalitarian control over digital property without power, without the ability to engage in a power projection competition, then there is no replacement for proof of work. There will never be a replacement for proof of work. And all proof of work is, is just the digital transformation of warfare itself from a kinetic power projection game to an electric power projection game. Remember, kinetic, force against mass. Okay, that's the power. That's how you're generating power. But if, if the property itself has no mass, then kinetic power projection is useless. You can't physically prevent someone, kinetically prevent someone, I mean, from denying you access to your digital property. But, but you can electrically deny someone access to your digital property. And that is what proof of work is. That is what this mechanism of all these machines competing each other to what we call proof of work is. And then the question is, okay, well, is proof of stake an actual viable replacement to proof of work? Well, that goes back to the other question. Can you actually own? Can you actually defend your access? Can you actually physically prevent a third party from denying you access to your property if you have to trust a top staker in the loop? And the answer is no. And I and I it like baffles my mind that this is even a conversation I have to be having, but apparently it is. And so I'm gonna write a thesis about it. So Right now, the U.S. military does power projection through a variety of means. Some of it is, you know, cyber. Some of it is kinetic. How then does Bitcoin relate to the current policy? Yeah, so this is something that comes up a lot. People just don't realize that kinetic, like we already have cybercom. We already have electronic warfare. So it's already true that war itself is not exclusively a kinetic power projection competition. We literally already have electronic warfare. So it's not even like a new concept. What was the second part of your question? It, it was focused on the, how does Bitcoin change or does it 
the way that the military projects power. Is what you're advocating for that something changes or are you just observing something that's happened? It's the second part, but this is the reason why the thesis is called mutually assured preservation. It's important to call out Bitcoin as a strategic imperative, not a tactical imperative. And it's important to call out, not Bitcoin, but proof of work as a nuclear scale strategic uh, opportunity, I guess. So like what I'm trying to argue is that Bitcoin itself should become the fourth leg of nuclear strategic deterrence. And I know that sounds freaking insane, but hopefully my thesis will, will be able to make an effective argument. And But it goes something like this. And by the way, I started this seven months ago before the global issues started to emerge and started to showcase this. But the, the fundamental argument is that kinetic power projection is stalemated. Once we invented nuclear weapons, we got to a point where it has become too expensive to use nuclear weapons to achieve zero trust and egalitarian control over physical property. It, you risk nuclear annihilation. So if we ever got into a territory dispute or ownership dispute with a nuclear power, that's a scary situation for obvious reasons. If two nuclear peers have a dispute over physical property that can only be settled through kinetic power projection and both sides have nukes, that's a scary situation. So we effectively scaled kinetic power projection. Society scaled kinetic power projection to the point where it's now too expensive to use the most effective power projection tool, which is nuclear weapons. And that's, that's obviously bad. But if, you, if you've stalemated kinetic power projection, then you've effectively forced yourself into a trust-based control structure because you no longer have the ability to exercise option number two. You can't defend it yourself. You have to trust another person. Or, and, and so I think this is where it gets really key because you'll note that after we achieved nuclear strength, did we get to the current USD monetary system? 1971, we're in nuclear power. We changed the monetary system. We, we effectively perform a giant gold denial of service attack against the entire world. And we just say, deal with it because we're a nuclear power. And then we basically just say, trust us. Okay. The problem with that now is you're trusting the United States not to denial of service to you, attack you. You have to, because you can't physically countervail them because it's too dangerous. You can't nuke the United States. That's not going to work out for anybody. Well, for anybody. So now we're forced, all of society, all nations are forced to subscribe to a nuclear power, particularly their financial system. And so they have to trust that nuclear power not to denial of service attack them from that financial system. And so we have the stalemate. And by the way, I started talking about this before 2022, before everyone sees on the world stage, what? two nuclear peers and a monster denial of surface attack on an underlying property, on underlying claims or perceived ownership of property. So Russia thought they owned a lot of treasury. They thought they had access to gold. 
They don't. They're they. Everyone is watching it. They clearly don't, because a nuclear power has the ability to denial surface attack them, and and you can't physically countervail them, not without risking the destruction of the entire world. So now let's take the perspective of anybody watching these elephants fight. So look at think about all the other third party nations that are in the grass watching elephants fight each other by denial of surface attacking each other. You've got China and Russia pivoting. They're going to get themselves off of this denial of service network called the United States dollar. They're going to they're going to maybe reprice their exports in digital yuan, for example. They're already talking about doing that. The problem for any third party nation is that you still have the same security vulnerability where you have to trust some nuclear power not to denial service attack you on that your claimed ownership or access to the underlying property. So if other third-party nations pivot to a digital yuan standard, they're still going to be vulnerable to Russia or China denial of service attacking them. Okay? And so, so recall, we're talking, what, what we're fundamentally talking about here is what is property? What is ownership? Is it really yours if you can't defend your access to it? What does your claim to that thing mean? Does it matter? Yeah, Russia can claim to own all the the you know hundreds of billions of dollars that are now locked from them but do they really own it ask so these are interesting questions enter bitcoin bitcoin yes creates a digital property but that's not what makes bitcoin special in my opinion in my opinion what makes bitcoin special is it offers it reestablish a zero trust egalitarian control structure over property meaning nations so long as they can put a rack of ASICs and run a mining network or a hashing operation, they can physically guarantee their access to the underlying property without having to worry about a denial of service attack. Like so long as you have the right to mine Bitcoin to to what is effectively write the ledger, you can guarantee that your transactions will clear. And so, and that's the whole point of Bitcoin. The whole, that's the entire point. Remember, the word attacker, attacker came 25 times over eight pages. The entire paper is describing how users, honest users can use their computers, their CPUs, to honest CPUs to project power against attackers to preserve their access to their underlying property. And so, so that must mean two things. One, that Bitcoin itself or proof of work represents a functional surrogate to war. So instead of machines fighting each other in a power kinetic power projection competition to settle some property dispute, you just have machines fighting each other in electric power competition to settle some property dispute. But more importantly, the kinetic power projection competition is stalemated. It's already stalemated. No amount, you can get more efficient. You can have the most effective drone swarms, human out of the loop. Totally, like that's what Space Force is, is non-lethal drone warfare. But let's say Air Force, you get a bunch of quadrocopters with like missile launchers on them and they're powered by AI and every buzzword you could possibly think of. Ru Russia goes to war against the United States 
with their tactical level drone swarms. And we get into this massive drone swarm fight where people are just watching on the sidelines and like eating popcorn to determine who wins this fight. But it doesn't matter who wins the fight because you're already nuclear stalemated. The United States isn't going to be like, oh, damn, well, you just want you just beat my drones. So I guess you can have North America now. Like, that's not how this works. And so so these are the like. You have to recognize that like. Kinetic war is a dead end. We're just marching down a dead end. It all it all leads to nuclear war, which is a war without winners. So you have to find some other mechanism to engage in zero trust and egalitarian control through power projection to achieve consensus on the legitimate state and chain of custody of an underlying property. And if you use gold, you're stalemated by kinetic power projection. If you use any sovereign network, USD, digital one, you're stalemated by nuclear power, kinetic power projection, and you're vulnerable to the denial service attack, as is clearly being shown on the world stage right now. So Bitcoin then could be not only the digital transposition of warfare itself from a kinetic to a power projection competition, it not only could be a new form of monetizable property that can preserve every nation's sovereign access to, tre to a treasury, to a sovereign treasury that they can fully claim to own because they can defend their access to it. But Bitcoin would also represent humans figuring out how to solve a nuclear strategic stalemate. We have reestablished a permissionless, zero trust, egalitarian control over monetizable property that doesn't threaten nuclear holocaust. And people don't know this. They, they, don't, they can't see this yet. And so maybe I'm crazy. Maybe this is completely wrong. But if it's not wrong, then this is, I can't think of a more important message to be telling to to policymakers, to the world, it Bitcoin could be mutually assured preservation. We just solved the threat of nuclear war over monetizable property, which we are seeing clearly right now. So talk to me about, you know, speaking of policymakers, if you could take your insights and turn them into actions and recommend one thing for the hypothetical policymakers that might be listening, what would you recommend? So I, the answer seems to be in history. If you study, if you reframe Bitcoin as a weapon system or a property defense system, right? The surrogate or supplement to war, a way for people to engage in a power projection competition to achieve zero trust and egalitarian control over property to maximize security and their self-sovereignty over private property. If you reframe Bitcoin as that, not as a, not as just a money, like that's not a, that like, while it may be possibly empirically valid, it's not enough. I don't think it's a very, it doesn't give us a lot of appreciation for its true value which is, I think is why you see people saying proof of work uses too much energy because they have no idea what they're saying, really. They don't fully understand the strategic implications. But anyways, so 
frame Bitcoin as a weapon system, as a property defense system, and go back and look at the history of technology of, of property defense technology. So go back and, and look what happened when the first dude and started throwing spears at the other guy, right? Like that was a new defense power projection technology to settle these disputes over perceived ownership, was it not? Go back to when people were killing each other with bow and arrows. Go back to when any new weapon was invented. What was the correct policy? Like if you're on the business end of a bow and arrow, what's the, what's the correct response? Is you freaking build some bow and arrows fast, right? Like if you're on the business end of Orban the engineer, who just designed and built the first functional cannon, you better get yourself some cannons soon. If you were on the business end of the Whitehead torpedo, right? This guy named Whitehead goes to the Royal Navy and offers to build the Royal Navy a bunch of torpedoes. And what does the Royal Navy do? They turn him down, just like Constantine turned down Orban when he offered to build to build uh, cannons, okay? That was a demonstrably ineffective policy in both cases. Constantine was killed by the Ottomans a year after he turned down the opportunity to, to buy Orban effectively. What does Orban do? He turns to the Ottomans, turns to a 19-year-old kid. So they shoot down the walls of Constantinople. Constantine is killed. What is, you know, the Royal Navy turns down Whitehead, says, we don't want to buy your torpedoes because it represents a threat to our naval hegemony, what does Whitehead do? He goes straight to Germany. Okay, guess who Guess who needs torpedoes ASAP the most? It's going to be the Royal Navy. So anytime a new property defense technology emerges, the shelling point is always, you must have that technology. The, the Nash equilibrium, the game theory says, like, you can't be the person that doesn't have trebuchets, that doesn't have catapults, that doesn't have machine guns fighting against a, another country that does or engaging in a power projection competition to preserve zero trust and egalitarian control over a over an underlying property against someone else. And so if you take it from this lens, then it's not even like it's not even controversial or hard to even know what the United States must do. The United States is number one export is property defense as a service. All these other third-party countries subscribe to the United States' military power for the purpose of property defense as a service. And what Bitcoin represents is the emergence of a new entrant, a new property power projection as a service protocol. So if the United States wants to maintain its leadership and hegemony as a property defense as a service exporter, then it damn well better understand and be the leaders of this new property defense technology. And so the answer is you buy it as fast as you can and you create a friendly regulatory environment for, for a commercial hash force. You want, you want as many, you want to be support. You don't want to be sitting here villainizing power proof of work. You want to be just making it rain on any company that offers to build, you know, 
mining infrastructure. You want to make energy cheaper for them. You want to at least make accommodating regular po regulatory policy. You don't want to commit fratricide. You don't want to label these heroes as not environmentally friendly because they're using energy. So, so the, so like right now the conversation is dominated everything in politics right now, especially when it, when it revolves around like technology is environmental effects, social effects and governance ESG. And the attack vector against proof of work is it's bad for the environment because it uses a lot of power. But the social element, the S part of ESG, in my opinion, trumps the E part. Yes, it uses a lot of energy, but most of that energy is demonstrably green. It's renewable energy, so who cares? Like we can prove that the carbon footprint of the electricity that's going into Bitcoin mining is like the greenest electricity of any industry. But even if you do, like throw that all away. Isn't it better to pay an electricity bill to defend people's zero trust now egalitarian control over underlying property than it is to put our friends on the business end of the gun? You pay, you're, you're trading, you're making a trade-off. Do you spill blood to defend our zero trust and egalitarian control over monetizable property? Do you risk nuclear annihilation or do you pay a freaking electricity bill? And it's like obvious if you frame it like that, what the right answer is, what the ethical answer is, what the most ESG friendly like answer is. The answer is, damn it, build more, use more energy. And, and by the way, the emergent properties of this, like the second and third order effects, what are the second and third order effects of kinetic power projection? It's blood, it's dead people, it's rubble, it's destroyed infrastructure. It's years of reconciling hatred between different societies, but it, but what's the second and third order effects of burning electricity, like scaling this massive electricity power projection competition, it's cheaper energy, it's more infrastructure. It's, it's less risk of denial of service attack of surveillance of all these real world problems that are clearly shown. If you just take a second to to actually understand this technology. Awesome. So closing question for you, you know, you're our first guest of all time on this podcast, you know, anything you'd like to say, or, or maybe give the listeners a reason to keep listening. Yeah. I mean, I guess what I would say is something that I'm discovering is that the, the art of innovation the arc of setting precedents, of breaking boundaries, of moving society forward, especially from a technological lens, is learnable, is repeatable. And so, like, you should keep listening to pick up those lessons, because if it's learnable and repeatable, that means you can do it and you can do it again and again and again. It's not exclusive, it's not exclusively just luck or intuition or being in the right place at the right time. There are, there are ways that you can actually master this. And, and I took that seriously from when I started reading about like innovation or design thinking or all these other types of things years ago. And here I am, like it's, it works. The stuff is 
I can't always explain how that keeps on working, but it definitely does. And it's like, at a certain point, it's not luck. At a certain point, it's you're doing the right thing. So keep listening to understand what the right thing is. Thank you, Jason. It's uh, been an absolute pleasure and honor. You know, you're uniquely special in this world. You're mission focused, you're passionate, you're brilliant. And, and quite honestly, you're willing to take a lot of risks for the betterment of the nation. So thank you so much, Jason, for your time. Thank you, Rob. This year host, Rob Slaughter. Thanks for listening to Defense Unicorns, a podcast. We have amazing guests coming the next couple of episodes. So subscribe now so you get notified when we release new content.